Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are times in life when the, when the success of an entire group depends on the actions of one person. I just think of the world of sports, for example. I remember one time when I was playing basketball in high school. We had a hard-fought game against our opponents. We battled back and forth throughout the match. With only a few seconds left on the clock, our team was down by three points. There was only enough time for one more shot. And during the timeout, the coach turned to me. It was all up to me to take that three-point shot to tie things up and force extra time. While the timeout ended, the ref blew his whistle. My teammate inbounded me the ball. I set my feet outside the arc and let the ball fly gracefully from my hands. Well, it wasn't an air ball, but it was close. And so, with a missed shot, the entire team lost the game. Now, that's a small example from sports, but we can think of other examples that are far more serious than that. Sometimes this happens in warfare, where the success of an entire army depends on just one person. We see this sort of thing in the Bible, too. Just think of David and Goliath. Goliath challenged Israel, saying, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants, all of the Philistines. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. If David lost... The entire nation of Israel would be defeated. But if David won, the entire nation would gain the victory. And we see a similar thing in our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one important difference. It was not in Jesus keeping his life that we gained the victory. It was in the Lord Jesus' death that we gained the victory. One man died so that all of God's people would not perish. That's also the sermon theme. That's the irony of the gospel. In Christ's defeat, we gain the victory. There's also another irony found in our text this morning from John 11. It's the irony that one of Christ's enemies unwittingly proclaimed this very truth. Our text is from John 11. John 11 features a climax of Jesus' signs. Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, showing his divine power to give life. And the raising of Lazarus brought about a twofold response in the people, as it often did. Many of the people saw what the Lord had done, and they put their faith in him. Others, however, went and reported these things to the Pharisees. The focus of our text is on the response of the Pharisees and the Jewish ruling council. In response to this report, the Pharisees called together the council and they discussed what they should do. As you read through the book of John for so many chapters now, The the leaders in Israel had been opposing the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now it comes to a climax. And notice that no one denies that Christ has performed this miracle. They seem to acknowledge that he has. But they simply cannot stand what Christ is doing, having all the people follow him. And so they ask, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. No, this is shocking. Christ has just raised a man from the dead. You would think that they would gladly put their faith in him. But they are willfully blind and disobedient. They only see Christ as a threat to their power and their position. They are scared that the people will begin some kind of Messiah uprising with Jesus And then the Romans will come because of the uproar and exile the people and probably destroy the temple. They are more worried about position and prestige than truth and faith. And we need to be on guard against that too. These men thought they were doing the right thing, but they were so wrong. They were not so much interested in reconciliation with God, they They wanted to hold on to power and to stay in the land living a comfortable life, and they thought it was all up to them. As one commentator put it, these men represent the kind of religion that is interested in in erecting financial and political empires, but little concerned with real saving power. And we can do the same. We can turn the Christian faith into holding on to a certain comfortable life. But is our main concern our relationship with God, holding on to the truth and doing God's will? Well, it certainly wasn't for the Pharisees. Now, at this point, the high priest Caiaphas, he interjected, you know nothing at all. And in Greek, he actually, he uses something called a double double negative. A double negative in English is when you say something like, I don't have nothing. Now, of course, in English, that actually means you, you have something. But in Greek, a double negative can be used for emphasis. And literally, Caiaphas says, you don't know nothing. And then Caiaphas gives his deadly suggestion, you don't understand that it's better for one man to die for the people, not that the entire nation should perish. He's suggesting murder, encouraging them to put Christ to death. And yes, it might be drastic measures, but Caiaphas reasons it will be either Jesus or the people. And so surely the ends justify the means, he thinks. Caiaphas effectively said we need to save this nation by putting Jesus to death. And there are multiple ironies here. The first thing is that Caiaphas is the one who doesn't know what he's talking about. 
He thought that in order to prevent a Messiah uprising, which would cause the Romans to destroy the temple and exile the people, they needed to put Jesus to death. However, putting Christ to death is the very thing that brought this thing he feared about. Through the leadership of the Jewish council, the people rejected Jesus and they had him crucified. And after that time, the Jews followed multiple false messiahs who rebelled against the Romans. And then the Romans did indeed come against Israel in 70 AD. And they did destroy the temple. They did take away the nation. So Caiaphas wanted to put Jesus to death to save the nation from Rome. Well, this was the very thing, putting Jesus to death, that led to it. And in this we see God's powerful working. He brought Caiaphas' plan down upon himself and the rest of the Jewish leaders. God executed judgment against those who plotted against his son. And he used it for our salvation. And this is how it will be for all those who plot against Christ and his church. God will ultimately bring their downfall. It will not succeed. And God will ultimately use it for our salvation. We see God's powerful working in the comments that John offers in response to Caiaphas' words. John writes, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Right? By God's power. Caiaphas unwittingly prophesied about the effect of Christ's death. And although it wasn't in the way that Caiaphas intended, what he said is very true. It is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And what a profound statement from an unbeliever. This is the other irony in his words. He proclaims the heart of the gospel, the good news of Christ. It's better that one man should die for us than that all of us should perish. Caiaphas was right. Yes, Jesus needed to die to save God's people. But he did not understand the type of salvation the Lord Jesus would give. It was salvation from eternal death in hell. If you want to understand what the good news of Christ is all about, you would do well to start with Caiaphas's statement here in our text, a beautiful summary of the gospel. One theologian put it well when he said, this is sacrificial language. Both Caiaphas and John understood Jesus' death to be substitutionary, a substitute. Either Jesus dies or the nation dies. If Jesus dies, the nation lives. It is his life instead of theirs. But while Caiaphas is thinking at the 
purely political level, John invites his readers to think in terms of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's true. Either Jesus perishes or we perish eternally. If Jesus dies on the cross, we get to live eternally. It's his life for us in our place. And this truth is spoken not only here in our text, but throughout all of Scripture. Just think of the book of Exodus, for example, with the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb died so that the people with the blood on their doorposts would not perish. And the entire nation did not perish. Think of the tabernacle and temple with all the sacrifices that were made there. The lamb or the ram died so that the people would not need to die for their sins as appointed ahead to Christ. Think of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. We have concluded this. One has died for all, therefore all have died. The payment has been made. Christ Jesus died in our place. He perished on the cross so that we would not perish eternally. He died to give us everlasting life. And He gives this life to all those who believe in Him for their salvation. See what He has done for you. See His great cost to Himself. The price He paid so that you might live forever. See the gain that you have received from His death in your place. And this is something we celebrate at the Lord's Supper as well. Here we have the bread and the wine, symbols of Christ's crucified body and shed blood. And as you partake of this food in faith, it's meant to signify and seal to you that, yes, Christ has died. See his broken body. See his shed blood. He has died in your place. He's died for you that you would have everlasting life. Remember the truth coming from Caiaphas' mouth. Either Jesus dies or the people of God perish. But here in the Lord's Supper, we see Christ has died for us so that we would not perish but have everlasting life. And that's not the only benefit of Christ's death. The Holy Spirit, through John, mentions one more benefit of Christ's death, also coming out of Caiaphas's statement. Listen to verses 51 and 52. Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, this could refer, first of all, to the Jews living in far-off places, part of the dispersion. And they were, some of them were indeed gathered into one as the gospel went out to them after Pentecost. But this has an even greater reference. 
After Pentecost, the good news of Christ would go out to both Jew and Gentile. And the children of God are all those who believe in Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, it does not matter. And Christ died to gather believing people from all nations into God's family. Christ talked about this already in John chapter 10. In John 10, Christ describes himself as the good shepherd. And he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, the Gentiles. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So so there will be one flock and one shepherd. And this is something we also see in the Lord's Supper. We have been drawn here this morning as fellow believers, drawn together in this building. We've been drawn together by Christ's sacrifice. As we all know, we need that sacrifice. It's brought us together. Here we are, people of different backgrounds. We all eat from the same bread, drink from the same wine. We all partake of the body and blood of the Lord. Christ's death on the cross has brought us together. It has gathered us into one, as our text describes. And that is a precious thing. We are one in Christ. And there is no closer unity that you will find anywhere else on earth. God has brought us all into His family together in May we celebrate that this morning also. We not only have Christ, but we also have each other. And we need each other. And so as the form for the Lord's Supper says, For the sake of Christ, who so exceedingly loved us first, we shall now love one another and shall show this to one another, not just in words, but also in deeds. Amen.